thank you for our kids and teens, and we thank you for what you call us to do with those teens. We pray that you would, Lord, stir us up in zeal. Don't let our zeal grow cold, Lord. Help us to maintain our fervency in serving you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to walk in those good works that you prepared in advance for us to walk in. Indeed, that we would be marked as a congregation, as individual Christians, by uh, actively doing good works, Lord. May this church be filled with so many Dorcases, Lord, who were known for their good works, their service to those in need, their service to the church, all bringing honor and glory to you. We pray for our neighbors, Lord, those who are hungry, those who are homeless, uh, those who are hurting. Uh, we pray for every neighbor, and we ask the Lord that you visit them with your love, and your love would, would reach them uh, through our witness, through the witness of other churches, Lord, like Congress Heights Community Church, or Mercy of Christ, or Capitol Baptist Church, or uh, Garden Morning Presbyterian Church, or Bethlehem Baptist Church, uh, so many churches here, New Macedonia, Lord, we pray, strengthen all of your churches and use your people uh, to advance your glory in the gospel and to love our neighbors. Lord, bless you. We pray this morning that you bless the graduates from high school and college and medical school, from trade school and uh, certificate programs, whatever they have graduated from, Lord, we pray that you would encourage them with what they have learned and how they have been that you would prepare them and give them excitement for the next chapter, whether that's more study or whether that's a profession or a job, whatever the case may be, Lord, we pray that you would continue to smile upon us and make us fruitful and productive, uh, that we might grow and advance in the life that you have created for us. Thank you, Lord. And I would pray, Lord, speak to us by the Spirit. We come to your word, help us to love our neighbors. Help us to consider them and to consider you, the one in whose image they are made, and make us the Lord to celebrate your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 19. And if you turn to the Bible today, raise your hand. If you need a Bible, one of the ushers will provide you one. Uh, also, the ushers are going to come. I think it takes the offering at this point. So while I do the introduction, Bible or wish to make an offering, uh, please be, be free, feel free uh, to do so. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're in uh, the middle of a series of sermons on the book of Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus is one of the books of Moses, one of the five books in the Old Testament that the prophet Moses uh, is thought to be the author of. Uh, it is part of what's called the Torah, which is kind of Israel's Constitution. This is the heart of ancient Israel's legal system, ancient Israel's religious system, uh, ancient Israel's system of courts and uh, rules for business. Uh, the Torah is meant to shape all of Israel's life. Now, the book of Leviticus is important for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons that uh, I want to bring up this morning is it, it's given to Israel at this real pivotal time. They have just come through the Exodus. God has led them out of captivity in Egypt. Uh, so he's freed them from slavery. He's freed them from Pharaoh. Uh, and he's taken them now to the land that he has promised them. As the book of Exodus ends, the book of Leviticus 
weapons of the nation had not had their own power, had not had their own land, didn't have their own military, they didn't have nothing. I mean, they were literally making bricks without straw in Egypt. He's taking his people and he's making them into a nation. The beginning of forming them in terms of their identity, forming their culture, uh, forming everything that was to be true of them as his people, as God's holy people. Now, the first 16 chapters of Leviticus really has a lot to do with Israel's worship. So we're focusing on the sacrificial system, the different kinds of sacrifices that were to be offered, how they were to be offered, the establishment of the priesthood, and the qualifications of the priesthood. Uh, so the first 16 chapters is really about how they were to approach God. Chapters 17 through the end of the book are really about how Israel is to behave as a community, as a nation, sort of how they are to approach each other. And if chapters 1 to 16 are sort of all about religion, chapters 17 to the end are all about the behavior. How that religious faith should play itself out in everyday interactions, in, in everyday dealings with each other. Now, if you're here two weeks ago, you know we did chapters 18 and 20. Because in chapters 18 and 20, uh, God speaks to Israel really uh, about sexual purity, sexual faithfulness. He, he outlaws a number of things in chapter 18, and then he gives the, the sort of judgments for those sins in chapters 20. Now, those four bookends really for chapter 19. So you think of it as a mountain. In chapter 18, we were going up this mountain of commandments that have to do with sexual morality. Uh, and in chapter 20, we're coming down on the backside of the mountain. But in chapter 19, we look around the top of the mountain, and we can see out this vision that God has for his people. And if you're putting this vision in one word, that one word would be holy. If you're putting this vision in two words, those two words would be holy love. That God's people are to be marked by a holiness unto God, and that holiness expresses itself in love. Love for God, love for neighbor. That's what this chapter is all about. So when we get into this chapter, we're going to see lots of individual laws, uh, and it can feel almost random. But in fact, in the background of these laws are the Ten Commandments. You see those in Exodus 20 and other places, but they're not sort of in order. So it feels a, a little bit random, it feels a little bit disheveled, some of it feels a little bit odd, but, but keep in mind, what God is telling them is that they are to be holy, that is separate, set apart, morally pure. And that holiness is to express itself in love. So, if you take a look this morning, we want to um, sort of focus on two things this morning. Two questions that God has to discern. Number one, why be holy? Why be holy? We're going to see that commanded in verses 1 and 2, and we're going to see the strategy for holiness in verse 37, sort of bookends the chapter. And the second question is this, well, how to be holy? How can we be holy? So why we holy and how we holy from Exodus chapter 19. This is the Lord's word. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make 
peace offerings to the Lord. You shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it, or on the day after, and anything left over till the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted. It will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from the When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field by the to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleaning after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall keep my statutes. You shall know, not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave, assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free. But he shall bring his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the lamb of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed. He shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. When you come to the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And the fourth year all its fruit shall be holy and offered a praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord, your God. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not mount off the hair on your temples or mark the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute. Thus the land fall into prostitution, the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out, and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, 
and you shall love them as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length, or weight, or quantity. You shall have just balance, just weight, a just ephod, and a just pen. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And you shall observe all my statutes, and all my rules, and do them. I am the Lord. Well, why be holy? Well, the basic command of this chapter is right there in verse 2. God said to Moses, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. It seems that the, the primary reason, the primary basis for the command to be holy, really all the commands in this chapter, is that God is holy. His people are intended to reflect his character. There to be like God in holiness. Now notice, the, the commands are not rooted primarily in human reason. They're not rooted primarily in some sense of effectiveness, so they will be effective in the life that God desires. So he's not saying, hey, do this and your crops will be great, or do this and this will turn out for you. No, those things may be true in their course, but the reason that God gives for this command is himself. His own character. He says repeatedly in this chapter, I'm sure you heard it, I am the Lord. For I am the Lord your God. You see there in verse 3, verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse 14, at the end of verse 16, 25, 28, 30, 31, 32, 34, 37. Just like God thinks they have a That as soon as he says one thing, they're going to forget who he is. And in fact, that's Israel's problem, isn't it? They keep forgetting who the Lord is, who their God is. And, and it's not just Israel's problem, it's, it's fallen man's problem, isn't it? We love the Lord. We really do. We trust the Lord. We honor the Lord. We worship the Lord as Christian people. And yet, don't we keep forgetting that he is the Lord? Which means he's sovereign, he's ruler, he has authority over all things, he has power over all things. And you would think that something that magnificent, you would think that something that great, you would think that something that life-altering would never be forgotten. And yet, later today, when the food service is slow, at the Mother's Day dinner, we're going to be acting like the Lord ain't the Lord. Well, yeah, it's been too long. We're hungry. The least little things, right, can tempt us to forget that he is the Lord. And, and more than that, to remember, to remember that our obligation to obey him is rooted in who he is. Not what he does for us, right? Not, not what it works for us but rooted primarily in who he is. This is important, right? Because if we only obey God's commands because we think they're going to work out for us, or if we only obey God's commands because as human beings, we think these are good commands, or they, they make sense, then guess what happens when they no longer appear good to us or no longer appear to make sense to us? We no longer feel an obligation to obey and that's the challenge right now in, in, in 
Christian thought this morning. God has said something that he requires of us, and we have looked at it and evaluated it and said, that don't make no sense to me. Or, or said, nah, that, that don't look like that's going to work. Or said, I don't want to do it. And we have made our own assessments the basis for whether or not we have made God. Don't live that way, beloved. You live that way, you just, you're just a hair away from putting yourself on the throne of God. Rather than letting God be God. He says, hey, the whole reason you are to be holy, you are to be separate, set apart, distinct from the nations, morally pure. The whole reason you are to be righteous is because that's what I'm like. I'm calling you to be like me, to share in my identity, to share in my character. And can you think of a greater privilege in the universe than to have the privilege of reflecting what God is like? And that's what he's made us for, every one of us, little image bearers of God, to reflect his likeness and to reflect his character. We obey God because he's Lord, and notice now, because he's also ours. I am the Lord, your God. He's saying this to Israel. I'm your God. In the New Testament, the church is Christ's bride. He is our Lord. And so they are to derive their identity both in the fact that God is holy and in the fact that they are related to him, uniquely and exclusively related to him. And so I am the Lord becomes good news because I'm also yours. And you are mine. That's really the only reasons God gives his people to be holy. Those are the enduring reasons, not not pragmatic reasons, this will work or that will work, but because we know who he is and we are known by him. That's to govern Israel's entire outlook. It's to govern our outlook as well. Remember what the prophets tell us, not to boast uh, in power, not to boast in wealth, not to boast in anything, but if we're going to boast, to boast in this, that we know him, that he knows us. That's our great boast, that we know God through his son, Jesus Christ. And more sweet, he knows us. He loves us. Sometimes people ask me, maybe this happened to you too, you're in conversation with people and they, they ask you if you know somebody. Say, hey, you know, I asked somebody here who will be nameless, lest they be embarrassed as they ought to be. I asked them, I said, hey, you, you know who LL Cool J is? <laughs> right? Everybody know LL, right? And they were like, no. <laughs> How do you not know who LL Cool J is? You know what LL stands for? No. Oh, man, when were you born? Like last week. <laughs> and so I, I said, you know, I talk like I know LL. 
And here's the thing, LL don't know me. He don't know me. He passed me on the street. I'll be like Kiki Paul. I don't mean no harm, but I don't know, I don't know who that man is right there. You see, LL and I don't have a relationship. I know a whole lot about LL. He don't know nothing about me. Our relationship with God is not like that. We, we know him, but the marvelous thing is he knows us too. He knew us first. He loved us before the worlds began. He is our Lord and our God. And we're meant to treasure him, to delight in him, and to find fuel for holiness because of that. Which brings us to our second question, which is really the bulk of the chapter. How then are we to be holy? Well, the chapter tells us, doesn't leave us guessing, both in verse 19 and in verse 37. You see there in verse 19, the very first thing, you shall keep my statutes. You shall obey my commands. That's how we are to pursue holiness. Verse 37, um, there it reads, and you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. Now, when God calls us to obey his commands, he's not trying to burden us. As 1 John says, the right apostle John says that God's commandments are not burdensome. Right? So if we respond to God's commands like, oh, that's a weight. Oh, that's heavy. Man, why do you keep putting this on my back? I just, I just, ah, I need to cast it off. That's not from God. And we are not relating to God as we are supposed to. God calls them into his commandments in order to call them into his character. He calls them into his commandments in order to call them into his life. His word gives life. Right? Properly understood, properly related to. Now, there's more we can say in a minute about Israel and, and how they responded to God's commands, but, but if you are a Jewish person at this time, in the time of Leviticus, if you're a Jewish person uh, up to the time of Christ, you are meant to be relating to God's word, his law, in that way. As a beautiful picture of the life that God wants for his people, a holy life. As the psalmist puts it in Psalm 99, I think it is, verse 5 or 6, they, they were to understand themselves to be worshiping the Lord in the beauty of holiness. That's how they were to relate. And so in this chapter, God gives his people a, a vision for what that looks like in society and dealing with each other. As I said before, this chapter is loosely based on the Ten Commandments. They're, they're not in order, the commandments, and they're not specifically quoted, but they're all related to the commandments. Um, and these 10 ways of, of living uh, are meant to give them, again, a, a vision for Israelite society, a vision for the culture they are meant to have. And so they are meant to def be defined by these 10 things. Number one, honor. Honor. Or you could say respect. You see it there in verses 3 and 4? Notice where God starts here. Every one of you, no exceptions, shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. Three things there that we're meant to honor. Number one, we're meant to honor mothers and fathers. Notice he lists mothers first. It's as if he gave this to Israel on Mother's Day. Right? Say, hey, no, you got to honor your mom and honor your dad. This is coming right out of the commandments, isn't it? 
And notice, not just moms and dads, but we're to, we're to honor older people. So jump down to Leviticus 19, verse 32. You shall stand up before the gray head. All y'all should be standing right now. <laughs> you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. Forget the old man part. And honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Well, why? Well, mothers and fathers are the first representatives of God's authority in a child's life. If you're here and you're a teenager or maybe you're 10 or 12 or you're here and you're 20, I want you to understand that God has put your parents in your life as, as a source of authority and guidance in order that you might be able to see through your parents to see something about what he's like. So you honor your mother and father. You respect them um, for that authority. And the same is true of elders in general. So persons who are here in their 50s or 60s or 70s, they are meant to be respected. They're meant to be shown um, deference and honor. Why? Well, because those are the wives among us. Those are the ones who have lived some time with God. Those are like parents to the community, you know, sort of showing us what godly authority looks like. And so we're, first of all, to honor mother and father. Secondly, we're to honor the Sabbath. Israel is to honor the Sabbath. Uh, that's repeated again in verse 30. You shall keep my Sabbaths Sabbath, and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. So we must also respect not just God's design for the family, we must respect God's design for time. The, the, the Sabbath is like a temple in time. It's this day that is set apart as holy for the worship of the Lord and for rest. Six days you do your work. The seventh day belongs to God. On that day, you rest and you meet with God. So respecting the Sabbath was one way of demonstrating that your time and your life belonged to God. That it was ordered and patterned by the God who made you. And then the third thing is we're to honor God himself. You see that in verse 4? Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. And we there the first commandment, really. Uh, see also Leviticus 19, verse 31. See what he says there? Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. What's a medium? Well, that's a person who acts as a go-between between our world and sort of the, the spirit world. It's, it's demonic, really. Necromancers. Those, that's a fancy word for people who uh, talk to the dead, right? He says, don't seek them out. Don't turn to such people. Don't make yourselves unclean by them. Why? Because I am the Lord your God. In other words, nothing should take the place of God in our lives. Not idols that we make, not occult practices like speaking to the dead and using mediums. We should not seek those things out. Tarot cards, palm readers, you name it. We should not turn to them. What the, the word says there in verse 4? That phrase, turn to, is the Bible's way of talking about depending on or putting your trust in something. God forbids his people to depend on or to trust in false gods, man-made deities. Here's a hint. If you can make a god with your own hands or design a god with your own mind, it is not God. It's not God. It is an idol. 
if you can root the origin of a religion in a person, but not in God, it is not God's religion. It is man-made. God says, don't trust that. Don't turn to that. Turn to me. So respect God looks like turning to God alone, trusting in God alone. And this is what holiness begins to look like in public. It looks like children respecting their parents and the community, respecting the elderly, people respecting the day of worship, and people respecting God by trusting him alone. And so as he begins to design culture for them, he begins with what to respect, what to honor. Here's the second thing. It's going to be a culture marked by worship. That's what we see in verses 5 to 8. There he begins to address the, the peace offering. You guys remember that the peace offering was that one offering that the people, the offerer, got to eat a part of it as well. Part of it would be sacrificed to God. God would consume it on the altar. And then the other part of it would be taken by the family and shared with the family and shared with the poor. It represented sort of reconciliation with God, a return to fellowship with God, a return to peace with God after sin had been forgiven. And these verses are a reminder that the offering, though, notice that word, needs to be acceptable to God. For it to be accepted... It had to be offered exactly as God required. So their worship needed to be precisely according to God's word. They could eat it on day one. They could eat it on day two. But they were not to eat it on day three. If they ate it on day three, then four consequences follow. The offering would be tainted. It would not be accepted, and everyone would still be in their sins. God's holy name would be profaned, even in the midst of worship. And that person would be cut off from his people or put to death. Notice this now. In ancient Israel, there was only one way an Israelite could come to God and have a relationship with God. There were not many roads to God, just one. Let's look again at Leviticus 19, verses 26 to 28. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You remember why from Leviticus 17? Because the life is in the blood. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. Again, occult practices. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your head. You should not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Now, I don't think God is against tattoos as such. I think this is ritualistic tattoo in idolatrous worship. All of these things have to do with idolatrous worship. God's saying, you can't come to me that way. You can't approach me that way. I'm holy. I'm set apart from all the worldly pagan things that people do in their sort of religious fervor. If you're going to come to me, you've got to come to me with the offering that I have appointed in the way that I have appointed it, or otherwise you will be left in your sin. Only one way to come to God is the way that God himself requires. Everything else ends up in guilt and sin and judgment against the sinner. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, one of the things that may trouble you about Christians is that we believe there's only one way to know God. I, I want you to see that, yes, we believe that, but that's what the whole Bible teaches from the beginning to the end. 
whether we're talking about the Old Testament system, where Israel came to God through sacrifices that God himself appointed. And as we saw in Leviticus chapter 10, when they tried to come to God and offer him strange sacrifices, strange offerings, it ended up in their judgment because it was not according to the rule. That's the literal phrase in in Leviticus chapter 10. It was not according to the rule. God has established the rule. He's established the pathway. He's established the way that his people will come to him. In the Old Testament, it was through the sacrificial system. Now, God in his kindness has fulfilled everything that the Old Testament law required. Not by our obedience, but by the obedience of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has come into the world, obeyed everything that God required. And not only that, but died for all the sins the world had committed. He he is punished on the cross. He is buried three days. He is raised from the grave three days later. And that was God's way of saying to the world, I approve of my son. I accept his sacrifice. What he did is effective for everybody who believes in him. But beloved, now Jesus is that only way to come to God. There are no other paths. It's not Muhammad, it's not Buddha, it's not even the Old Testament law anymore. It's Jesus and him alone. He is the door. And so when we tell you this morning that you must believe in Jesus in order to have your sins forgiven, in order to escape the judgment of God against the world because of sin, when we tell you that you must believe in Jesus in order to live forever in God's love, we are not being narrow-minded bigots. We are people pointing you to the only road that leads to life. We're not bigots. We're trying to be your friends the kinds of friends who tell you the truth, even a truth that can sometimes be hard to accept, that you may not wish to hear. There is one way to God, and we should praise God that there is one way. The problem, beloved, the problem, beloved, is is not that there's only one way. The marvel is that there is one way, and that way is Christ, and it's open to everyone. What we're reading in Leviticus was only open to Jewish people. What we see in Jesus is the doors of heaven open to every nation, every tribe, every age, every color, every height. So come to Jesus. Repent of your sins. Believe that he died for your sins. Believe that he was raised from the grave three days later. Put your trust in him. Turn to him. Don't turn to idols of your own making. Don't turn to occult practices. Don't turn to other gods. Jesus is the only one who claimed to be the only way. Start and end with Jesus. Put your faith in him and live forever. If you got questions about that, we'd love to talk to you more after the service. But you see the second thing they're going to be marked by. They're going to be marked by respect or honor. They're going to be marked by worship. Uh, Moving a little bit more quickly, they're going to be marked, number three, by generosity. By generosity. Look with me in verses 9 and 10. 
When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not um, strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. I love this text. He's just commanding his people to be generous, to consider the poor, to consider the sojourner, or another word for that, the immigrant. And what is he saying here? He's saying, listen, a profit motive is going to be insufficient for holiness. In a, in a pure profit motive, it, you know, here's the saying, make all you can, can all you get, sit on your can, right? That's the way capitalism works. Capitalism says, hey, whoever dies with the most toys wins. The Bible says whoever dies with the most toys still dies. But there's a way of living here that's not marked just by productivity. There's productivity in this text, 9 and 10. There's working a vineyard and producing. But it's also marked by generosity and dignity. So don't, don't take all the profits. Don't take all the crop. Don't take all the grapes. Leave some out there for the poor and the sojourner. And how do they get it? Well, they got to go out there and work too. So, so even in their poverty, even in their immigrant status, they have the dignity of work, of gathering for themselves. And we get, or they get, to express generosity by leaving some for them. God's people ought to have a special consideration for the poor, a special consideration for the sojourners. These would have been vulnerable people in that society. They wouldn't have had the ability to provide for themselves in these significant ways. So God has made his people the provision by instructing them to share. The economic philosophy of the Bible can, can be boiled down to that one word, share. Share. That's what a holy society looks like. That's what a just society does. It shares. Number four, their society is going to be marked by truth. You see that in verses 11 and 12? You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So those two verses gives us several forms of deception, don't they? Stealing, dealing falsely in business, false testimony in the courts, false oaths, swearing in God's name. And Leviticus chapter 19, look at verses 35 and 36, it's going to apply this same principle to the business realm. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephod, a just hand. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So things were weighed to determine their value. And crooked people would rig the scales. Right? So the things that weighed less or more would be made to look, you know, different. And so they would cheat people. Uh, even the scales in the temple at certain points would be unjust scales, unbalanced scales. But God says, no, no, no. My people will be truth people. My people will be committed to the truth across society, whether in the courtroom or whether in the business, the boardroom, uh, whether with religious oath. In every sector of society, God's people owe each other the truth. Colossians 3.9 says, speak the truth to one another. It's impossible to be a holy people without truth. When truth crumbles, everything crumbles with it. 
truth is like the foundation to a tall skyscraper. A skyscraper may impress us as it soars up above all the other buildings and towers in the skyline. But that skyscraper stands on an unseen foundation laid beneath the ground, holding up all of its weight. If someone were to explode that foundation, then the entire skyscraper would wobble and topple into rubble. And the same applies to the skyscraper of society and culture. Its foundation is truth. Destroy commitment to truth and you destroy holiness and eventually society. God's people to be marked by truth. Number five, they're to be marked by justice. See that there in verses 13 and 14. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. This is what holiness looks like in its dealing with its neighbors. It doesn't oppress. It doesn't rob. It protects workers' rights and workers' pay. It shows a special regard for people with disabilities. And all of that's built on our reverence for God, our honoring God. It's the thing, beloved, we, we judge the holiness of a society or a church by how well or how poorly they treat the vulnerable among them. God's people could not consider themselves holy while they allowed things to be done to the weak and the vulnerable. You can't consider yourself holy and turn a blind eye to oppression. You can't consider yourself holy and turn a blind eye to robbery. You can't consider ourselves holy and turn a blind eye to how the blind are treated or the deaf are treated. No, holiness looks like advocacy for the weak. Number six, God's people are to be impartial. See that in verses 15 and 16? You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness, in righteousness, shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. This is a really vital verses for our day and age, isn't it? Our day and age is a lot of talk about justice, but a lot of it is simply partiality in the language of justice. God calls us to something really quite difficult here, that we are to be impartial. We show no favoritism either to the poor or to the wealthy. But we are people who are meant to look at things and to discern right from wrong, whether poor or wealthy, whether male or female, whether black or white or Asian or Hispanic. We are meant to be people who make discernment a keystone to our society, not bias. So we're meant to be people who should be for courts that do no injustice. That verse alone should make Christians advocates of criminal justice reform, in this country at least. That, that, that verse alone should compel some of us to, to hear God calling us to the legal profession, 
not, not to be corporate lawyers, though there's nothing wrong with that, who make a lot of money, you know, not for that reason, but many of us to become public defenders. Many of us to become judges. Why? That we might, with the mind of Christ, enter into a broken system and be those people who judge impartially, who do righteousness. I mean, if justice is blind, it shouldn't see what it has in your bank account. If justice is blind, it shouldn't recognize where you live and then make a decision based upon that. We should not be able to predict people's outcomes in the criminal justice system based upon things like income or race or where they live. Not at least if God's people are in that system. We shouldn't be people who slander others. Our testimony should be true. We should protect other people's um, name and character. Be careful, God is saying here, about how you talk about your brothers and sisters. And in a just society, God's people should not send people to their death based on falsehoods. Notice there, you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. Exodus 23, verse 7 says, Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. So we can't be people who are silent when we have a death penalty in this country that demonstrably is unjust along the lines of race and class. We can't be quiet about that. We can't be quiet as, as God's people when the law of the land in many places still allows the abortion of children? How do we celebrate Mother's Day and abortion at the same time? No, seriously, ponder. No, we, we, can't, we can't stand up against the life. Literally, the text says they're the blood of our neighbor. We have to be for the protection of life. I mean, what's, what's ruled out here? Standing up against the life of your neighbor, bearing false witness. That's what we see the unrighteous do throughout Scripture. That's what Jezebel does in 1 Kings 26, 10 to 13. Hires some worthless men to speak slanderously uh, of another man whose field she wanted to take. That's what they did with Jesus when they put Jesus on trial and crucified him. Matthew chapter 26, verses 60 and 61 says some worthless men stood up and gave false testimony about it. Isn't that what they did in Acts chapter 6 against Stephen? Acts 6, 11, and 14? Some worthless people accused him of things that were not true. It cost them their lives. We, we, we are not meant as God's people to be in that number, but people who stand up for the vulnerable and protect life. Which brings us to number seven. That the culture of God's people is to not only be marked by justice, but also by love verses 17 and 18, I think are really the, the top of the mountain, the tip of the mountain in this chapter. It says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. A holy society is a loving society. Right here in this text, God forbids hatred, notice, in your heart. Uh, those words are, are really, well, they're sobering, right? Because we can hide hatred with our outward action, but God is looking at our hearts. 
it's out of the abundance of the heart that we do certain things. If our hearts are full of hatred, well, sooner or later it will flow out. And God is like, no, don't even allow it in your heart. See, the heart may reveal ugliness when our actions don't. And instead of hatred, we must be reasonable. We must be able to talk to one another so that we don't sin against one another. The New Testament says, let your reasonableness be seen by all. Are we reasonable? Or are we people who carry grudges? See, we must not seek vengeance. Vengeance belongs to the Lord, not to us. We shouldn't carry a grudge, holding things against each other and refusing to forgive and to reconcile. That's not a gospel life. That's not a holy life. And it very much applies to Mother's Day, doesn't it? I mean, how often have mothers and children carried grudges, sometimes for years? Applies to marriage, too, doesn't it? How often have marriages, husbands and wives, ruined their marriages by holding petty grudges, refusing to forgive, poisons our hearts and poisons our relationships. This is why God is like, don't let that be in your heart. God has something better. It's love. We must love others as we love ourselves. And based on the number of times that Jesus quotes this verse in the New Testament and the different situations in which he quotes it, I I tend to think this might be one of his favorite verses. If Jesus has a a life verse, it might be, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The treatment we desire and demand from others, we should give to others. I spend more time on social media than I ought to on Instagram. The reels are dangerous, the puppies and the cats and all that stuff, funny videos. One of the videos that's really quite common nowadays are, are videos, usually of women, uh, but men also, uh, just sort of asserting what they deserve and asserting what they must have from other people. Now, on the one level, it's affirming a person's worth, and that's a good thing. You should know your value and you should not let people treat you less than your value. Amen? Amen. But what you don't see are people then saying, as often you don't see people saying, and I'm going to give this to others. I think love your enemies or love others as you love yourselves is maybe in the culture just become love yourself. And anybody who doesn't love me the way I want to be loved can't have a place in my life. That's not the Bible, beloved. That's not, a, that's not the holiness that God calls for. That's self-love. That's idolatry. And it's dangerous. No, we're meant to love others as God has loved us, and that love even goes to people who are not like us. So look in verses 33 and 34. When a stranger sojourns, this is the immigrant now, with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So not only should Christians be on the forefront of something like criminal justice reform, we should also be on the forefront of immigration reform. We we should be on the forefront of advocating for people on the border, not necessarily for a particular outcome, but at least for their humane treatment, for loving treatment of image bearers who are on our borders or in our neighborhoods. 
We, we can't be caught up in xenophobia, fear of the other. We've got to be caught up in xenophilia, love of the other. That applies even to something that we, you know, might have to respond to in our own neighborhood, like gentrification. The folks who move into the neighborhood, who may be coming from a different economic class or a different ethnic background, are to be loved as sojourners, as newcomers. They're to be loved, even as we work on equity and justice and fair treatment for people who are already here. See, love is wide-reaching in that way. It calls us out of ourselves. It calls us to risk ourselves. And that makes sense when you think about Jesus on the cross, doesn't it? How he gave himself, risked himself to love us, people not like him, that we might be with him. A couple more things and we're done. Verse 19. Holiness looks like purity. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Uh, verse 19 is interesting. It, it's the kind of verse that people who don't believe the Bible like to sort of bring up to sort of suggest that the Bible is crazy. Ask you if, you're, if you've got, you know, mixed fabrics on. Check your label as if God got real beef with polyester and cotton. That's not what this is about, really. Number one, it's a test of obedience, right? He says right from the break, you shall keep my statutes. And I'm led to believe that sometimes God gives his people some things that we don't necessarily make a lot of sense of. And the point is not the thing itself, but obedience, the heart toward God. But, but I do think that what God has given them is sort of a parable, a picture of holiness. And remember, holiness is about separation, separation from the world, etc. So in all these little ways, the mixing of cattle, the mixing of, of foods in the fields, the mixing of clothing, they are practicing and seeing a picture of separation come out from among them. Be separate, be pure. And so holiness is a, is a purity. Morally and physically. And number nine, holiness is about atonement. Verses 19, or chapter 19, verse 29, chapter 20, verses 20 to 22. Uh, two cases there again where sexual immorality come into view. But in 20 and 22 in particular, there's this provision for atonement. It's about the forgiveness of sins, the grace of God, the sacrifice of God to take away our sin. It's about the prevention of the pollution of the land, the, the, the depravity running over. God restrains his people in holiness, keeps them back from depravity, keeps them back from abuse, keeps them back from fraud, that they might belong wholly to him. Last thing, verses 23 to 25, a holy people are also a patient people. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. Now, there's practical farming wisdom in that, uh, allowing those trees to sort of reach the point of full fruit-bearing maturity. 
There is religious principle in this. In the fourth year, that, that whole crop belongs to the Lord. He takes his tithe, as it were. It's not till the fifth year that they can eat the fruit of this tree. They are waiting on the Lord here. They are being shaped, even in agriculture, into a patient people, a trusting people who look to the Lord for the harvest. Well, those are ten things that are meant to mark Israel as a society. Ten things that are reflections of God's holiness in terms of how they treat each other. There's honor, there's worship, there's generosity and truth. There is justice and impartiality. There's love and there's purity, atonement, and patience. Here's the question this morning. Did Israel live up to this? No, they did not. Sadly, they did not. In fact, they could not. And this is the explanation that Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 give us as we close. It says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So in other words, the law was holy, and the law, as we saw in chapter 19, gave God's people a vision for their life. But the law couldn't produce that vision. Why? Well, because the the holiness and the power of the law was weakened by the, the sinful human nature. It was weakened by the flesh. So what the law could not do, God did do. And how did God do this? How did God make for himself a holy people? The text says there in Romans 8 verse 3, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, that is, in our humanity, and sending him for sin, God condemns sin in the flesh. He condemns sin in Jesus' body in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So God sent his Son into the world to accomplish what the law in the hands of men and women could not do. And in our own flesh, Christ has paid the penalty of the law. Christ has provided the righteousness of the law. And because of that, we live now not in our flesh, but we live now in the Spirit. And as we keep in step with the Spirit, we fulfill what the Bible calls the royal law of the Spirit. We fulfill, we fulfill the law of love. We become the community that God would have us to be. All of us, so many weak individuals, so many struggles, so many hopes, some of them dashed, so many weaknesses, some of them overcome, all of us up and down, just human beings, are nevertheless filled with the very Spirit of God, walking in the righteousness of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, formed, as 1 Peter 2.9 says, into a royal priesthood, a what? A holy nation. Israel was a pointer to us. Not a pointer that says, come back to me, the law, but a pointer that points forward, look forward to Christ, the righteousness. Israel was this failing nation over and over again, and the church, with all of her struggles, all of her bruises, all of her imperfections, is not a failing nation, but a triumphant nation in Christ. And we will be made to, the universe will be made to see the glory of the church on that day when Christ comes and gathers his bride. 
So what's for us to do with Leviticus 19? Well, not to worry about laws regarding tattoos and not to get caught up in what kind of fabric blends you're wearing. Not even to turn back to Sabbaths or turn back to uh, laws regarding bribery and those things, some of which are affirmed in the New Testament, but to turn to Christ, to trust him over and over again to meld us into the holy people that he wants for himself. All of our life is lived by faith if we're Christians. Not by works. Even the good works that God has prepared for us to walk in, those are not works that we look back to and trust. All of our life is lived by looking to Jesus, turning to him, hoping in him again and again, and waiting for him again and again, patiently, like waiting on a five-year crop to produce in us not the, the fruit of grapes, but to produce in us the fruit of the Spirit. Loving each other day by day, forgiving each other, being reasonable with one another. It all seems so ordinary and weak. But have you tried to be reasonable with people you're in conflict with? With children who don't obey you right away? Or with spouses who don't obey you right away? Tried to be reasonable in ministry teams with different visions. Reasonable about some possession that's in debate. It all looks so ordinary and so weak. But it's God making us the people that he promised he would make us. Holy, righteous, the apple of his eye. So beloved, let's, let's pursue this vision like Christians. Not like Old Testament Jews, not like Israelites in a covenant that's now obsolete, but as new covenant people with a God who lives in us, with a God who gives us strength to be like him as we put our faith in him. Let's pray together. Father, we do give you praise and thanks that you have saved us. We have not saved ourselves. We have not somehow achieved merit, praise. We've not earned this salvation. You have given it to us. You have kindly and generously and impartially given us this great salvation that we might be rescued from sin and live eternally with you, that we might have you as our father and the church as our mother, as it were, that we might be nurtured and suckled on the milk of your word until we grow into the fullness of the stature of Christ and then share in your glory. We thank you that you are holy and we are to be holy like you. And we pray indeed that you would help us to grow in holiness, to be separate, set apart from the world, to be morally pure, to be clean, so that we might offer to you acceptable sacrifice and praise worthy of your name. And if in any way we fail, when we fail, we pray that you would graciously and lovingly correct us, restore us to Christ, let us eat that peace offering that is the, the body and the blood of Christ. And so this morning, we thank you that we get to end our service in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. 
We pray that you would remind us, even at this supper, of your holiness and of what you have provided for us, that we too might be holy through the sacrifice of Christ your Son. We ask this, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We have the privilege this morning of concluding our service with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. I want to invite uh, the other pastors to come and join me as we uh, prepare to do so. As they come, invite you to, if you don't already have elements for uh, the supper, to raise your hands. The ushers will uh, come along and bring you uh, the elements. You've got a hand down front here. Um, I, I need a cup and wafer myself. Um, and as you keep your hands up until they can see you, let me remind you what this supper is. This is a a supper that Jesus shared with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. It's actually older than that. It has its roots in the Passover in the Old Testament when uh, the, the Passover feast was established um, to help Israel remember uh, the passing over of the angel of death who struck down the, the firstborn in Israel unless there was blood over the doorposts uh, of an Israelite house or an Egyptian house. Jesus takes that meal that was given to commemorate that event and he reinterprets it in terms of his own life and his own mission. So that meal of, of bread becomes symbolic of his body and the wine that's drunk there becomes symbolic of his blood. And this meal that we are about to take becomes symbolic of the salvation that we have through the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ and the shed blood of our Savior. And he commanded his disciples, his followers, to remember his sacrifice in this dramatic representation uh, as often as they would. And so in obedience to the Lord, we come now to remember the Lord's sacrifice. So what we do now is going to follow a pretty simple pattern. Uh, one of the brothers is going to come and read for us 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 17 to 34, where the church in Corinth was given instructions about the Lord's Supper. Another brother is going to come and lead us in renewing our covenant, which you should find if you use the QR code, uh, you should find uh, in the order of service there. Uh, then another brother is going to come and lead us in prayer to confess our sins, and then we will take the supper together to build our faith. Amen? Good afternoon, church. Looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this is Paul writing to the church. And he's writing to the church because there's division among them. They're divided between the haves and the have-nots. And Paul here gives a rebuke and a warning. Gives a rebuke and a warning to this church. That when they come to the Lord's Supper, they should actually remember the Lord. And not only remember the Lord, but also examine their hearts. 